Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-473 of the Run Run Live podcast. And this one, my comments will be a bit brief. As I told you, I think last time, is I got a new role, and it's been, frankly, kicking my ass for the last couple of weeks. So I'm basically working two roles at the same time during the transition period. Uh, I have to keep the plate spinning in my old job, which is sort of customer-facing, and and then spin up my new job, which is is uh, essentially building out a new business. So all of which leaves me, what did you think I was going to say? Exhausted? Overwhelmed? Nah, you know me by now. It's true. I have a paucity of applicable hours and minutes and seconds, and I'm drowning, but I'm energized. I am. Actually, I haven't felt this alive in years as far as work goes. Yeah, I find myself late in the afternoon with my head groggy, and I you know, I have to get on a call with Japan after hours, and I'm like, hey, I'm cooked. But, you know, then I remember, I remember all the things we've talked about over the years, how to how to focus on the process, how to relax into the discomfort, how to breathe and smile. And when you get tired, you focus on your form, your hips, you have grit, and it will all work out. And if it doesn't, who cares? Right? And that was just a long way of saying I didn't have a whole lot of spare time to write this week to work on the podcast, but I'm going to push through. Today, we have a great chat, a very thoughtful chat with Sidney Baptista. He's a smart entrepreneur from Boston who's got his hands in a lot of things, one of which being a running clothes startup called Pioneers, spelled P-Y-N-R-S, Pioneers. If you want, you should follow him on Instagram. He he posts a lot of good stuff. He knows how to use Instagram, and it's SidBap, S-I-D-B-A-P, SidBap. Tell them I sent you. In section one, well, who knows? Haven't written it yet. <laughs> no, that's not true. I did write it. But as of uh, when I was writing this copy, I hadn't written it yet. Turns out I'm going to tell you a story about how I got trapped in an ice storm in Dallas. So then in section two, well, it turns out I got started writing. Uh, I had a thought about this time that I went to a trade show and came back with a whole bunch of business cards and what I did to turn those into relationships. I thought you might find that interesting. And it turns out once I started writing, there you go, bang, 1,800 words. So what what can you do? You know, I guess there's a lesson there, right? If you just start, it finishes itself. So like I said, I'm drowning over here. And the only reason you catch me writing for the podcast and doing podcasting is to avoid the housework I haven't done. So I guess the lesson here is that uh, you're never too old to learn something new. And you're never too old to fall in love. Perhaps it's even easier when you get older. Certainly makes you wonder about how you spend your idle hours when you get super busy, right? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The Last Snowplow, a lyric opera in six parts. Yeah, Eric and I were trading texts about this, and he 
he wanted me to write a comedy. It's not that much of a comedy. It's not a very good story either. But I'm going to tell you this story. You can consider it like a race report. And it starts with me scheduling a meeting in Dallas for my new role. Like two weeks before I'm even in this new role, they're giving me meetings. And I'm psyched because, you know, I love traveling. I love meeting new people. I love adventures. And as I'm packing to go, I look at the forecast for Dallas so I can pick the right running gear, right? That's what you do. The hotel I stay in there has this nice side rock around this man-made lake. And I can't wait to get out of the freezing cold New England weather and actually run in shorts. But, lo and behold, much to my consternation, much to my surprise, the weather forecast is to be in the mid-20s on the morning I'm going to be there. So my plan was to fly down in the morning, have a half day of meetings, take these guys to dinner, work in the office the next day, fly home the following afternoon. But you know how plans go, right? I was going to be there for a day, so I didn't want to pack all my winter running gear. So I said, nah, I'll just do a session on the treadmill in the hotel. And the flight down was a dream. COVID was surging through the middle of the Greek alphabet with abandon across the heartland, but it makes business travel kind of fun. My drive into the city was a breeze. No traffic in the apocalypse. The flight was empty. Got a bunch of work done. And it wasn't even raining in Dallas as I got my Uber over to the office. But there was a big storm coming. It was going to rain, maybe even gasp, snow. And it was going to be in the 20s. The end days were here. The end days were upon Texas. And you know what? I didn't really care. You know what we call 20 degrees, freezing rain and snow in Boston in February? We call that Tuesday. Sometimes we call it Friday. Sometimes I'll have to wait till 9 or 10 a.m. in the morning for the weather to warm up past zero degrees so I can go running, let alone 20 degrees. So we got through the day okay at work, had my meetings, met some guys, pretty good day, took them out to dinner. By the time we're driving over to dinner, though, it was raining pretty hard, still warm, but raining pretty hard. And my phone, I kept checking my phone. It was telling me that by 8.30, 9 o'clock, the temperature would drop below freezing. And that's when you want to be hunkered down inside somewhere. Because as soon as the mercury drops below freezing in Texas, everyone starts driving their cars into each other. Like one of those end-of-the-world movies that are popular now where everyone goes nuts and starts killing each other. Like that. So my boss gave me a ride back to the hotel. I did what any sane New Englander does in a storm. I went to the bar and asked what kind of IPA they had on tap. That's about when I got a text message from Delta that my flight for the next day had been canceled. But hey, it's okay. We rebooked you on another plane the next day. Yeah, it's okay. But my two-day trip just turned into a three-day trip. And the IPA was pretty good. When I woke up the next day, It was starting to feel like the end times. It had frozen overnight. There was an inch and a half of ice on everything. And the temperature was 20 degrees and the wind was howling. And it didn't look like I was getting into the office. But if you're going to be stuck, you might as well get stuck in a Marriott, right? I had power. I had internet. I've been working out of my spare bedroom for two years anyhow. This room was about the same. Texans pride themselves on their independent self-reliance. But the trouble with an ice storm is they don't have the tools to deal with an ice storm. Cowboy boots, 10-gallon hat, a 30-odd-6 rifle don't help much when your pickup truck has to climb a hill with an inch and a half of ice on it. I mean, they have no plows. Well, maybe one or two plows. They have no sand or salt, no way to treat the roads. And they have no de-icing equipment at the airport. They have a lot of elevated cement highways filled with people who have never driven in the snow and ice. So towards evening, I was getting a little bit of cabin fever. Now my second day trapped in the hotel. And I didn't want to eat in the hotel again. And I figured, hey, I'm from New England. I'll just walk the quarter mile to the nearest restaurant. I'll put my fuzzy hat on. I always travel with a fuzzy hat. There's a travel tip for you. But I didn't really have a coat. I had my suit coat. 
So I went downstairs to the lobby. I stuck my head out the front door, and the wind was howling, and everything was covered with ice, and I made the smart decision, turned a U-turn right around, went back to the bar, ordered a pizza. The same staff in the same clothes, still on duty. (laughs) They were all sleeping in the hotel as well. I made sure to tip well. God love those people. And then Delta had me on a 7 a.m. flight the next morning. How the hell was I going to work that out? How would I get to the airport when Uber wasn't even driving, even with the exorbitant surge pricing? I started trying to figure out how to reserve something so I could get up at the crack of dawn, maybe make a break for it. And then Delta magically canceled that flight and rebooked me to leave later in the afternoon which was actually a relief. They would give me all day to get to the airport, give the storm a chance to move on. Now on day three, three days into my one-day trip, I worked another morning from the hotel. When the appropriate break and ceaseless Zoom calls came, I called Uber, and I made a break for the lobby in the airport. And good karma here, good karma. My Uber driver was an immigrant from Minnesota who drove a Jeep Cherokee, well worth the surge pricing. There was literally an inch of unplowed, untreated ice on every road. He took it slow, stayed off the brakes. We avoided the plethora of accidents, and I happily found myself at DFW, and I just might make it home. But I wasn't banking on it. I was fully prepared to sleep in the airport. Wouldn't be the first time. But no, the plane was on time, another empty flight, got me back to Boston around 10 p.m., and guess who met me at the airport when I landed? The same giant ice storm I had just rode out in Texas was now meandering across the Northeast. Mid-twenties, raining, with the temps plunging below zero, overnight. So you know what I did? You know what we do in New England when the weather's like that? I drove home and I went to bed. That's what I did. And that's it. It's New England. And that's my Dallas disaster story. Fairly boring. Fairly uneventful. Everyone was pretty tired. We didn't resort to cannibalism. But it was kind of fun. And now for today's featured interview. Sydney, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do and why we're talking. Yeah. So Sydney Baptista, born and raised in uh, Dorchester, Massachusetts, Boston. Dorchester is the biggest, most diverse neighborhood of Boston. People don't really know that. Sometimes people think Dorchester is like a suburb of Boston, but it's really like the biggest part of Boston. Got into running in like 2014, just to kind of, I was going through a transition phase where I was leaving corporate America. I used to work at PwC, big four accounting firm, doing IT consultant. And uh, I hated it. So I left to create a music festival and that failed. And I was just kind of at this point in my life where I was like, I did You go four years of school, like high school, college, you go to the firm six years. And it's like, what's next? Like, what's the next four years look like? And then I saw a friend of mine running down on on Newberry Street uh, one day and I was like, maybe I can do that and started running with them. And it was just like this powerful kind of realization that it was something I wasn't good at, but I was like committed to getting good at. And um, it built a lot of discipline into my life at the time. And I fell in love with it. And so now fast forward to today, I created a running team in Dorchester. So Prior to me, when I first got into running, I would have to go down to the Charles, down to Newberry Street, down to the Back Bay, over to Cambridge to run and feel comfortable about running. And so in 2017, I created my own running team here in Dorchester called the Pioneers Run Crew to some extent to bring running to this neighborhood and also to diversify running. Now I am a running coach and I have the running team and I launched a a running apparel line. So I'm a run entrepreneur. Yeah. So uh, running for you was transforming, right? That's a really common story over the last 20 years I've been doing it and talking to people and in some sense did the same for me, right? But you see these people where that act of running is great. It seems like you're giving a lot back. You're using a vehicle to do the next thing you said. Yeah, totally. Uh, It definitely, it came into my life at a time where it was like, I needed something. And the intramural sports wasn't cutting it. I had bad knees. I wasn't as fast. And so like, it's like this, this period in your life when you're kind of questioning things and something that's as stable as running, something that as joyful as running and build so much kind of discipline and confidence. The more you do it, the better you get at it. So um, it's easy as that. And so, yes, definitely transformed my life. So I think an important part of your story, you got to paint the picture for people because we're just audio here, right? Yeah. 
paint the picture for people who aren't from Boston. What's the difference between Dorchester and the financial district, right? Or Somerville or Boston's an old city and it, it never burned. So it's still laid out the same way it was laid out in the 1600s. So it's all these little like villages, right? Correct. And each one over time emerged with their own sort of society and, and culture, right? Yes, yes, so, absolutely. Yeah, so how, what? how's Dorchester fit into all that? Absolutely, absolutely. So like I said, Dorchester is the biggest, most diverse part of the city. But even with that, Boston in general is a very segregated city. The time period of redlining, you can still see that in, in Boston and in Dorchester, it's cut up right up. There. So if you take Dorchester Ave, the left side is all coming if you're going south. The left side is all white community and the right side is all communities of color. And then, but in like the back bay where the South End used to be a diverse like community of Latinos and black people, but now it's like transitioning to be a majority white neighborhood. And so Boston's a very segregated city. And so most of the people of color who live in Boston live in Dorchester and live in these pockets that, that I live in. And so what you see on TV and movies about Boston is not my Boston. Right. Growing up in Boston, I didn't know anything about the Boston Marathon because it doesn't run through my neighborhood. I didn't know anything about much of the downtown area because we just didn't go, right? Like like you said, Chris, it's you within your own village and you don't oftentimes leave that. I didn't see South Boston until I was in my 20s. And yeah. we neighbor South Boston, right? Growing right. up, it was like, we would get into fights going to stop Boston. It was so bad. Yeah. 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 And so I think you hit it well by saying that Boston has its little villages. And so Dorchester, although it is a diverse space, it's still very segregated. And my part of Dorchester, where I live, is the Fields Corner. It's actually now called, um, the Fields Corner area is called, uh, so there's a big Vietnamese population here. And so it's called Little Saigon. That's new. They just called it Little Saigon. But if you move two streets up towards my area, Bowdoin, Bowdoin Geneva, there's like no more Vietnamese people. And it's all... Cape Verdean and now Latinos that are there. And so it's just very interesting. Yeah. And it, and it changes over time, right? Because that was all Irish immigrants 50 years ago, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Got it. So one of the things you mentioned there is that that's not where you're going to find a lot of distance running club yeah. or road running, right? It's just not yeah. part of the culture. What you're doing is trying to bring that in. Correct. Yeah. And then also, if you're running in the back bay, you're likely living in the back. If people of color don't live in the back bay, then you're not seeing people of color running in the back. And so when I was going to the back bay to run, I was one of a few people of color who would travel in to to run. And so I just got tired of being one of the only. And I knew that if running was making such a powerful change in my life, that people in communities in Dorchester and Roxbury, where they're probably going through people of color in these neighborhoods, they're dealing with health issues, financial issues, Kind of life issues and if running was doing such a powerful um, shift in my life like i knew that it could do it could be something for for others so that was part yeah. of the reason why i was like let me bring it running it doesn't exist over here that's something that's accepted people can benefit from it and i want to run with people who yeah. are my community yeah it's kind of similar to that um back on my feet uh, organization yes. that i've talked to yes. a few times because it is such a powerful transformational force you can perfect fit the reason we're talking though is you've got a, a new venture because you're an entrepreneur so you can't stop inventing stuff <laughs> Right, no. you can't stop. It's in your nature. Um, so gift and a curse. What have, gift what have you invented <laughs> with your restless mind? I know. So you create a running, and you get all these new people into running, and you realize that a you got to teach them how to run because <laughs> I don't know anything about running. You're the expert, and so although so I started as a Nike pace, and then I became a run coach through the Heartbreak Hill Running Company, and I was a coach at the Heartbreak Studio until COVID shut it down. And then I had to become a coach to teach the people I was running uh, with. And then outside of that, we started running. And then we noticed that the culture we were creating in running, like the apparel in the space wasn't really reflecting our culture. A, our runners tend to be bigger bodied, right? Newer runners, people of oh, color, yeah. Yeah. people who don't look like that guy to running, like you said, the uh, six yeah. minute miles on the Charles Wynn, the Boston jacket. We don't know about the Boston Bond because we've never seen it, right? We- yeah are running for different reasons. And so like when you start to cultivate a community like that and you start to see that the apparel that's out there doesn't necessarily fit us really well. I remember buying like, it was like a GQ magazine. It was like the best running shorts. You yeah. know, I bought them and they didn't fit my thighs. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a runner. Like I've run marathon, yeah. you know, I'm a coach. So if they don't fit my thighs, let alone it's, how does it fit the people who I'm servicing yeah. uh, in a diverse community with diverse yeah, bodies, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm a big guy too. And uh, <laughs> I, I recently, because of um, an injury, I put on a little bit more weight. And I was just having this conversation with myself this week, how I really don't want this form-fitting stuff, right? Yeah. Give me something puffy. 
that I can hide yeah. inside. And, <laughs> and I always had this conversation with my skinny friends, like you guys, your thighs don't rub together, right? <laughs> that's good. Yeah, it's a good point. So with that in mind, we created an apparel line that's more inclusive sizing. And I don't want to say, I don't oversell it and say like we fit everyone because we don't. We're a small brand. It's hard to, to get above a certain um, size, like uh, a size run as a small brand. You have to invest a lot more. However, when we do our fit test, our small fits like a normal small body. It's not an extra small, right? Like, or if, for example, if I'm wearing a size medium in a brand like Lululemon, which I love Lululemon. Lululemon is actually a sponsor as a sponsor of my running team, but I wear a medium in that brand, but I wear a small in my brand because our brand is made for bigger bodies, right? Like we don't test for aspirational size, right. we do for actual sizing yeah. and our fabrics, they stretch a little bit more so it could fit a little bit more. And, uh, and so we, we created product that kind of spoke to the communities that we were servicing. And it's also the colors are a little louder. The logos are a little loud. It's like yeah. when we show up in a running space, we're loud, we're rambunctious. Yeah. You cannot miss us. And that's the same with our apparel, with, with the apparel that I brought to the market. Um, and it's not only for my community here in Boston, but it's for people who connect to that vision of running where it's not like this perfect thing that you have to look a certain way and run this yeah. fast. Yeah. Uh, so no, that's, that's a good niche. So what's it called? So my running team is called Pioneers Run Crew, spelled the right. actual way Pioneers is spelled. The neat thing about the name Pioneers Run Crew is it comes from the New York Pioneer Club. Are you familiar with the New York Pioneer Club? No. So New York Pioneer Club was the first integrated sports club in all of America. Okay. Um, yeah. So before the NFL, before the NBA, before the MLB, it was the first integrated sports club that you can go to and run alongside people that didn't look like you. And um, one of the founders or one of the, the people who were there early was Ted Corbett. Yep. And Ted Corbett founded, was one of the founding members of the New York uh, Roadrunners. He was a famous ultra runner. Yep. Famous, yep. famous ultra runner. Ran into his 80s, right? Yeah running marathons and all and ultra marathons and so we to pay homage to that we, we named our team pioneers run crew and then from there we named our apparel line pioneers apparel spelled p-y-n-r-s kind of a little bit of p-y-n-r-s okay yeah pioneers just a little culturally different kind of street we like to say we're a streetwear inspired running brand just from a cultural mm-hmm. standpoint and so we just took that name and kind of played with it a bit and so it's pretty cool yeah that's great that's cool yeah good for you and now what's this new coaching thing you're pushing? Yes. And so, so you're an IT guy back from PwC. So what, what's the, you got to have some tech, right? Especially yeah, these well, days when there's so much stupid PE money being thrown at early stage venture, right? Yeah. I'm only a coach on this app called Pace, Stay on Pace. Yeah. It's an adaptive training platform. So it's like a, a high value, low cost training platform where it was created with top coaches to create training plans that we can put in a tech platform that then adapts to any individual who is training. And so I'm one of five coaches alongside Amanda Brooks, Kara Goucher, Greg McMillan, and Matt Fitzgerald. We've taken our training philosophies. We've created training plans from anywhere from like the one mile to the marathon. We put it on this platform and now the platform would allow for you, Chris, to sign up, pick a coach. It's uh, $4.99 a month and your selected coach will, uh, will you'll select a, a training plan and then you'll go through and pick the days that you're going to be training and the days that you want off. And then we'll hit your, we'll, we'll set your training plan up and there are targets you need to hit. And if you hit them, great. If you don't, then we have some messaging and some, and so that the, the tech adapts to your schedule and to the way you're training. So if you're constantly overtraining, we'll adapt it. It'll adapt to, to less of your training. If you're under training, then it'll do the vice versa. And so what I love about it is that it doesn't replace personal coaching, right? Never does that. However, it brings that like personalized coaching experience to people who might never experience. Yeah. Somebody who can't spend a hundred bucks. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so for four ninety nine a month, it allows for you to have top coaches give you the training plan and then adapt to, to kind of the life situations that happen. So how's the uh, adaptation work? Is there any technology behind that? Yeah. So it's what I know so far is that it adapts to kind of you tell the app what you're training for, what your pace goal is, what your current pace is, your time and your days that you're training. And so we set it based on that. And then if you're constantly running and so you can connect it to your Garmin, connect it to your Strava. And if we're constantly seeing that you're running faster than the pace you should be running, then we'll adjust it. If you're constantly running lower or, or slower than the pace that, that you're running, that, that you're set to be running, then we'll adjust it for you. If you're missing a day here and there, we'll adjust it for you. 
And when I say we, I mean the tech, the tech. Yeah. And so it's adaptive in that way. It's a good application. We have enough data now that, so we're two Boston guys. I can say data. Yeah. We have enough data now and we have the algorithm. We should be able to do that well because yeah. we have heart rate data. We exactly. have this, this time. Yeah. You know, we, so, could even, we could even get cadence, right? So you could you could almost sniff out injuries, sickness, and that's what happening. Yeah. And so we, we do... A lot of our training plans are based on threshold patients. And I didn't want to get into threshold because honestly with me, the way I coach and I coach a bunch of new runners, I never talk about it. Right. It's like, what's that? You know? Right. So a lot of our training plans are based on threshold patients. We'll be able to read that and see the levels of exertion that, that you're putting into your workout and adjusting uh, adjusting accordingly. Yeah. I mean, to get there, you got to do a fitness test, right? Or a yeah. max heart rate test, right? To get a good guess at your threshold yeah. because everybody's different, right? The combination exactly. of your fitness physiology, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. The tech is not necessarily speaking to that. I know that when I create my, my training plans, that's how we do it. But uh, the tech al- alone is just kind of looking at your pace, looking at what you're, you know, what you put in the data you input. And I'm sure as we grow, you know, the wearables that folks are going to be wearing in their arm to kind of like really read uh, the data in your body. I, I see a bright future for that. Yeah, because the other thing we're getting is this big, big pool of collected data now, right? So you look at something Strava or Garmin, they've got millions, billions data points, yeah. right? And set loose an algorithm, train an algorithm that sure 80% of the stuff is fairly trained. Yeah. Uh, care of it. But so how do you get around when you, you have a coach? A lot of the value is the personal action, right? A lot of people yeah. just want to talk, That's right? very true. Uh, they want somebody to tell them try harder, you know, or they want to tell them it's okay, right? So how do you get yeah. around that? The pace training. To be one hundred percent honest, it's like there's no replacement for that, like that that coaching, that personalized coaching. However, our personalities do come through with every time you either hit your pace or hit, hit your workout as planned. There's something that hey, it's great, great job, keep up with it. If you're missing it, then there's there's messaging for that, and if you're overdoing it, there's better that. So our personalities do come through there. But there's no way to really replace that one-on-one coaching. But it just kind of brings that experience to kind of the masses. And so I would think there's some specific things you can alert on, right? So if you're, like you said, if you're, you're seeing a, vol- a radical volume change, a radical pace yeah. change, alert yeah. on that. Exactly. It, yeah. You can sort of say, hey, what's going on? Exactly. Yeah. Right? And, and we can we can easily highlight if we're seeing you missing a bunch of workouts. It's like, hey, this is the most important workout of the week. Or if you see you're working too hard, like th- these shouldn't feel that hard. And so yes, there are definitely things we can alert. Yeah. And I think even part of it is, as this is pretty new, it came out, uh, Pace launched, I would say, over the last two months, soft launch in December, big launch in, in January. And we're now trying to understand, like, the people who are falling off, how do we get them back on? Yeah. What's the messaging? What's the strategy? Think about how we do it with in, in-person coaching. Because some people love it. And obviously, some people try something and they're like, they don't come back and check in. And so... Yeah. Yeah, you got to remove the friction and you got to make it sticky, right? Yeah, yeah, How do you make it sticky? It's got to hit somebody at emotional level, right? Yeah, I feel like as races start to come back in a bigger form um, and people start to uh, register for for races and those goals, I always say that community, there's nothing like community. And so creating some sort of community that keeps you accountable to your goals, I I think is the biggest, you know, if if there's a running community you can join, go join them. If there's a, a a friend or two that you can run with, go do that. And there's nothing yep. that replaces that. No, sure. especially if you're a beginner, right? To have that support. Oh yeah. yeah. And we talked about the triggers, right? Of a change in volume or, or missing workouts, right? That's when people get injured, right? That's sort of the make or break, especially with new yes. runners. You know, a yes. veteran runner will say, okay, I'll take a week off. Um, but a new runner will be like, that week turns in forever, right? Because exactly. the hill's just too hard to climb yeah. emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. And plus, yes. you, you get all these people who are looking for you. Who, oh, that's great. <laughs> yes, 100%. Hundred percent, and so I even see it sometimes with deep in Boston Marathon training, right? And there are people who are new to running, and they're like looking at this sheet of paper for their training plan, and it's like you have to do this. It's like no, you don't actually have to do this. You have to make sure your body feels good to make sure you're feeling comfortable doing this before you're going there, right? If you're not hitting twelve miles comfortably, do not push it to fifteen the next week. Yeah, and just because this piece of paper is saying that um, doesn't mean you have to do it, and so just having people around you. And then also that's where like an app like this comes in and kind of adjust that for you. Yeah. And there's this thing with new runners, especially where they don't think they can do it. And if you can get them to do it, it's a real revelation because every long run is the longest run they've ever done. Yeah. 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 Right? Yeah. It builds upon it. Yeah. It's just as much mental as it is physical. So if you don't believe that you can do it, you probably can't. If you're waking up and say, I can't do this, then probably you're right. Can't do it. Right. You've yeah, already so told yourself. There's this negative reinforcement, then there's this positive yeah. reinforcement. You gotta figure out how to get the positive. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. One percent better. One percent better. 
and just believing that you can do it and listening to your body. And yeah, I love talking to new runners about that. Yeah. Just changing the perspective a little bit. Just take the stress out of it for them, right? Because it's it's just scary and it's hard and it's hard for a while. (laughs) Yes. It, It also gets to be too much sometimes when there's all this tech also, right? Like obviously I, I'm, a, I'm a coach on a tech app, but sometimes you got to remove a lot of the tech, right? Like remove the watch, stop looking at Strava, just go out and do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And or, and the, or the power of going someplace new, someplace beautiful, right? Yeah. It's very true. We have a big race coming up in Miami this weekend. We have the some people running the marathon, the half the marathon, Donna? and the five k. Yep. Oh uh, no, no, it's the lifetime marathon. The marathon. Oh, the, mar- the Miami, Miami marathon. marathon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miami marathon. The marathon, the, the half marathon, and the five k. And yep. so we have like forty people going. Really? And yeah, and a bunch of people are newer to the running. And so that's going to open up their eyes to what this running is, right? And yeah. so, like you said, going to new places is always awesome, and it always brings people a little bit closer and a little bit more committed to running. Once yeah. you discover travel for run, running, you know, traveling to run. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the community, right? Having yes. With friends. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so just sort of e- that. experiencing that. Yeah. That's, that's true. So that's good. You're doing good work. What's next. I know a guy like you always has a 10 year plan. What's the. <laughs> yeah. Right. Honestly, right now it's um, growing the apparel line. I, I really do believe that there's a space for it. I think that the majority of people in running, don't look like a size two, right? Don't look like the guy that's running. If you think of the marathon, there's a small amount of people that run at the front. What about the people that run in the middle and in the back? Like who's kind of speaking to that? Like not everyone wants to be the fastest runner. Not everyone's running to win a marathon, right? So kind of creating experiences and apparel that speak to the people in the majority um, is what really excites me. And continue to diversify running, right? Like through this app, democratizing personalized coaching. I can't coach everyone personally, but now I can give you the tools for you to start running. Um, so yeah. how do we create more content, more, and then that content that gets you into running, then how we serve you through apparel and experiences through running. And so, yeah, I'm trying to slow down a little bit. I don't want to move on to the next thing too quickly. I think right now, you know, the running team with the, with the coaching and the apparel is, is kind of a sweet spot and I'm enjoying it a lot and I have a family. And so trying to balance that out. Trying to do life balance like everybody else in the world. Right. Um, <laughs> so it, yeah, it's unachievable. So how'd you hook uh, people like Kara and Matt and those guys? So pace is actually made by training peak. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, I got so, it. So I, I probably should have said that from the beginning. So it's this not is, my app. This I, is this is Training Peaks' um, effort to go down market with a new product. Yeah, I get it. Yep. And then they're gonna help. And then it's it starts with five coaches, but as we grow, more coaches will come on and help diversify a coach's business. Right? Like yep. you can meet the people who can afford you. You can meet the people who are maybe further down the funnel or you know, right. higher in the funnel and, and yep. move them down towards. towards yeah. Them. And I think you can do that without cannibalizing the business because yeah. those are two distinct different groups of people. I right? 100% agree with you. Yeah. 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 Sometimes, is- sometimes coaches don't want to talk about it. You know, I'm like, Hey, I want this new app. And they're like, Oh, we don't want to talk about it because yeah. it's like taken away from their coaching. But I'm like, this is two different markets, right? Like if right. someone is, is looking to be a Boston qualifier, they're not downloading pace, right? They're, yeah. they're going to be finding a coach. They're committed yeah. to to that. But if you're just getting, to running or you just kind of want something to a little to, to give you some exactly yeah, yeah getting back structure. into running yeah i think it's perfect for that and it's very affordable yeah all right well give us the links of how to get to everything how to get to you and get to everything and get back to work awesome yeah so i'm uh sid bap s-i-d-b-a-p on instagram that's where my most of my, my running community is um pioneers run crew is on instagram so if you go to my profile you'll find stay on pace so stay on pace.com to learn more about training peaks new uh training app called Pace, SIDBAP on Instagram, and then pioneers.com, P-Y-N-R-S.com. Um, check it out. Yeah. Get you some, uh, some inclusive, beautiful, bold running apparel. I'm sure you'd love it. All right. Great. Well, it was great talking to you. Thank you for yeah, uh, Thanks for setting it up. I appreciate it. Thank you. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Okay, my friends. We're going to talk about prospecting, engagement, attitude matters. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, I took a new job at a startup. And one of my first activities at this startup was attending an industry convention, a trade show, where I met, interacted with, and traded business cards with maybe 30 to 50 people. And my goal for that startup was to form commercial relationships with some of these people, some of these people that I met, and to leverage those commercial relationships to advance the goals of the company. Simple, but how do you do that, right? 
Well, when I got back to my office, I loaded all these business cards into my system and I started doing my thing. So there's no big secret to following up on business contacts. In the business, it's called touches. You can get to anyone if you organize your touches. It doesn't matter if you're trying to sell something, if you're looking for charitable contributions, if you're looking for volunteers for the bake sale, or you're looking for a new job. The process is the same. It's simple, and it works. So touches are essentially how you follow up. Your touches could be a marketing outreach, invites to events, etc. This is what they mean when they say, I'm building a campaign. You start with getting their attention, then you try to move them to interest and to engagement. Now, you have been on the receiving end. You are always constantly on the receiving end of these touches in these campaigns, right? You get the email, you get push-related ads, you get some sort of call to action, like download this white paper. And that's the point. That's the point where they, they have your attention. They have your interest, and when you download that that white paper, they get a bit of engagement. And it used to be easier to get people's attention. I think so. Now everyone's so overworked, so stressed out, so distracted, it's very hard to get their attention. But still, you can get anyone's attention if you're willing to put the effort into it. And this goes back to the methodology. And at the risk of sounding like a steak knife or timeshare salesman, your attitude. Now, I'll tell you about my process. My process was and is, I guess, if I was to do this again, a series of touches. Six to nine touches, as a matter of fact, six to nine, not rocket science. Do you know what the average number of touches that most salespeople need to get a response, to get an engagement? Well, turns out it's six to nine. How about that? As a corollary, Do you know how many touches on average a salesperson will make? Let's call them attempts before they give up. That number is two. They give up after two touches. Why? Because after two tries, they run out of things to say and figure the target doesn't want to talk to them and isn't interested. Whereas many times the target is just too distracted to pay attention and doesn't notice until that sixth or ninth touch. And ironically, this is particularly true of prospects that everyone wants to talk to, the executives with control over budget. Those executives tend to be impressed by and award persistence. And I can tell you from personal experience, having finally gotten to the executive on the phone and having them say, first, let me tell you, I'm impressed with your persistence. Yeah, they like it. Another reason people give up after a couple of attempts is that they haven't thought through their process. They haven't personalized their approach. By the second touch, they're repeating themselves, and it's awkward, and it's needy. It's not effective. But it can't just be persistence. It has to be a particular type of persistence. It can't be the spammy, automated campaigns that we all get. It's got to be personalized. And it has to have a story. And you have to tell them briefly and efficiently why they care. So that means you have to do your homework. You have to have a thesis. And in practice, what would this look like? First, you're going to research the person. You're going to look them up on LinkedIn, right? You understand what their role is, what their history is, and make some assumptions about why they would care. And you research the company. You figure out what the CEO is talking about. You figure out why the company would care, and you create a story or a thesis around how the why do you care is all aligned with what you're talking about or what you're offering. And next, you're going to take that story and you're going to spread it out over those six to seven to nine touches, and you're going to come at them from different directions. It can't all be the same type of approach. There's different ways to get to them, and this means finding something relevant and important to say for each touch. So the touches build on each other and they progressively advance the storyline across the arc of those touches. And it's got to be personalized. It's got to be professional. Note, I hate this new automated campaign stuff that's coming out of California 
where they talk like you just met after surfing off a muscle beach. Hey, dude, check out this cool stuff. I hate those. Don't do that to me. But back to our discussion. You align different resources that are at your disposal with your thesis and the story. Maybe some press releases, news articles, quotes from customers, collateral, stuff like that, that you can deploy potentially across the arc of those six or seven touches. But why don't more people personalize their approach? Because it's hard. It requires research and preparation and planning. You can do maybe a wave of 10 people a week with a personalized approach. Because do the math. Seven to nine touches, 10 people is 70 to 90 touches. And this is another reason why the touches you receive in your life are so low quality. Because in an attempt to squeeze more productivity out of the process in the vernacular to make it scalable, it all gets commoditized. And that is precisely why my high-quality personalized approach is so much more effective. I can get to almost anyone. I have an 80% engagement rate. That means... Eight out of 10 people are, it doesn't mean they're writing me checks. It means those eight out of 10 people are having engagement and conversation with me. So here's a basic example, right? I got my list of 10 people. I've done my research. Day one, I'm going to touch them three times. I make these touches all at the same time within minutes of each other, but mandatory the same day. First touch, I call them on their telephone. And I call them before the workday starts in their time zone, 6 a.m. or earlier. Why? Well, here's what's going to happen. High percentage of the time, you will get their voicemail, and you can leave a nice, tight, short, personal message. Every once in a while, somebody will actually answer the phone, because especially executives are the type of people who are in the office at 6 a.m. And if that happens, you'd better be ready with that same nice short, tight, personal message. Additionally, many people aren't going to give you their phone number, on even on a business card. You know where they work, you know their name, but you don't know their direct number. And if you call before office hours, no receptionist is going to answer the phone. You will get that miracle of modern technology, the automated company directory. The nice, mindless computer will give you their direct extension of that person you're looking for. And when you hit their extension, you might even get an out-of-office or an after-hours message where they tell you, hey, you know what, I'm not at my desk right now, but if this is an emergency, call my cell phone at XYZ or reach out to Bob, my assistant, at ABC. Now I've got their cell phone, their direct extension, and the name and number of their assistant which I can use for the next round of touches. So that voicemail is the first touch. I'll also send a connection request on LinkedIn on this, at the same time on this first day. And again, with a personal, non-salesy, non-committal message. And my tested message on LinkedIn is, Bob, hope all is well. It would be a pleasure to connect, Chris. That's it. Just getting on the radar, just trying to get a conversation going. At the end of my first voicemail, I'm going to close with, and I'll follow up by email, which I do right away. And there are your three touches. I send a personalized but professional email that doesn't try to sell them anything and repeats that personal, tight, short message. All I'm selling in the initial approach is engagement. I am, in the vernacular, closing for a conversation. That's it. The next two, three touches are one or two days later. No more than two days later. You got to keep it fresh. Assuming I haven't heard anything back from them, and this is a phone call followed by an email, where I might have a piece of content, like a press release or an article. I might. This is where I might put content in and have a message that says, I thought you might be interested. And again, I'm closing for a conversation. Nothing more. Now, this second touch has a higher probability of getting to a live human because I'm calling now during office hours and I have their direct extension and I know who their assistant is. 
Then finally, a couple days later, I might try again with another email and another call at a different time, another piece of content. And finally, eventually, if I haven't heard from these folks, the last touch is what is known as a Dear John message. And it goes something like this. Sorry to have been bothering you. I see you're not interested. I'll stop sending you email. And surprisingly enough, this creates some sort of FOMO in a certain percentage of your targets, and they'll they'll respond. They'll say, no, 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 I was just busy. So it's really interesting, the psychology here. And that's it. That's the mechanics of it. I can get engagement 8 out of 10, even in today's hyper-distracted, super-noisy world. But what about attitude? How does the attitude matter? Have you ever been called by a telemarketer? Of course you have. What does that person sound like? They sound like they're staring at a list of a hundred names and they're going through the motions. Typically, they sound like they hate their job. They sound like people who have been yelled at and told to stop calling me 50 times before they got to you. In summary, they are miserable. They hate the world, and you can hear it immediately. Who wants to talk to this miserable person? Who wants to engage with this miserable energy vampire who knows nothing about you and what you care about? Nobody. Why do companies use these methodologies then? Well, because they say it's a numbers game. And their numbers mean that the more touches they can cram in, the more engagement they can have. In the vernacular, they want a scalable process, something they can throw money and people at. A machine they can throw money and people at to brute force engagement. And what's the hit rate for that kind of process? It's about 8%, actually, which I find surprisingly high. And for the math challenge, that's eight people out of 100. I can't do 100 touches a day, but I can do 10 touches a week and get 80%, 8 out of 10. The final thing that I'm going to say, which was the lead into this article, is that attitude is the tiebreaker. Attitude is the secret sauce. You can't do any of this with that bad attitude. When you're leaving these touches, especially the first touches, you have to pour your enthusiasm into those conversations. It's not brain surgery. It's not digging ditches in the rain. It's life and it's fun. Have fun. Be genuinely excited to talk to these people when you pick up the phone. So let's ask the question again. Do you want to talk to people who are happy and fun? Yes, you do. That opens people up. They like talking to you. They try to help you. And at the end of the day, that's all you're looking for, help. And that's how I've always approached it. You can't call people on the phone when you're stressed out and depressed like those poor telemarketers stacked up in small cubicle hell somewhere in the flatlands. So it's the end of my story. Well, I was able to turn those trade show contacts into business. I mean, yes and no. That startup turned out to be not so commercially successful, but at the end, at the end, uh, one of those contacts that I made, one of those engagements, was the owner of another company who ended up buying that startup. So it all comes out in the wash. Put life and happiness into your approach, and you'll make an impact. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have run through the mean streets of Dorchester. To the end of episode 4-473 of the Run Run Live podcast, we are the pioneers of running. So my training is going horribly. Yeah, you heard me. I tackled a 15-mile long run last week in the freezing cold, and I try to do it at a 30-90 uh, interval, which means a walk 30, run 90 seconds. And I got it done, but my knee did not react well. It basically went back to square one. Uh, I made a, I tried to get out Tuesday night after my call with Japan uh, with the dog, but the conditions were so slippery and the knee was really giving me a sharp pain. And uh, you know that pain, right? That sharp pain. Here's a tip for you kids. Sharp pains are usually bad. <laughs> Only runners would get that joke. 
I made it about 100 feet out of my driveway and I just bailed. It's like, it's not worth it, man. It's not worth it. I've taken, I've taken the rest of the week off and I did get out this morning with Ollie. We did five-ish miles on the road, took it down to a shorter run-walk interval. It took me a good mile to warm up before, before the pain went away. Uh, it's still pretty dicey. Snowstorm this morning. So part of part of my challenge is the weather we've been having in February. Every Sunday has either been freezing rain, snowing, or or zero degrees. And it just makes it hard to run, especially with a dog on a leash, especially with a with a buggered knee. So we'll see if I can get it back on track because I'm signed up for the Flying Pig Marathon in May. Yeah, that's right. Me, Tim, Dwayne, and Dave. We're renting a house. Come on up. We'll have some fun. Even if the knee doesn't turn around, I can finish a marathon. Yeah, it's only a marathon. After that, I'm thinking, you know, if, if things are still sore in there, I'll switch over to mountain biking for the summer. You know, buy some good knee pads. I have to figure out, if I do that, I have to figure out how I can get Ollie Wally out with me. So I don't think you can ride a mountain bike with the dog on a leash. That sounds suicidal. Anyhow... I have to do something because we're both starting to get pretty fat. And I'll tell you a story from work. Like I said, I'm transitioning out of a group that I worked with since the pandemic started two years ago. It was a, a startup of a sense, a new business process within a bigger company. And we were those pioneers figuring it out as we went along. And I, you know, for the life of me, I didn't think I was doing that good of a job. I was, you know, acting like I knew what I was doing and pushing through a lot of hard stuff on a wing and a prayer like we do. But in my mind, I was barely holding on, right? I wasn't making enough progress. I wasn't getting enough accomplished. And in this process, in this new role, because I'm in a different point, a different season of my life and my career, I was trying to bring more of myself to the team, more of the real me. So I started that fitness group. I coached people as much as I could. I made a point not to be much of a narcissist asshole know-it-all <laughs> like I usually am. And I tried to be kind and helpful and mindful. But I really didn't think I was making any progress. I kind of felt like I was I was just barely keeping up. So here's the thing. I've been totally blown away by the people talking to me and saying how much they appreciated the work I did, how much I helped them, how I made a difference, how I made an impact. Across the board, people I worked with, people on my team, people on other teams that I interacted with, customers, I'm blown away. And I'm not saying this as a narcissist. I think it's just the opposite. My whole career, I've been focused on me, 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 me. But when I stopped gripping the wheel so tightly, when I let it go, I had more of an impact. And that's the lesson. I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.